We continue in our study of the Psalms this morning, and we're in Psalm 81, so if you'll turn to Psalm 81. And turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness, to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Father, as we come to your word, we need you to be at work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to hear your truth, truth that's vivid and beautiful, truth that can sometimes be hard to hear, but yet is so needed. Father, fill me with your Spirit that I would proclaim it clearly today. Be glorified in all we do. Open eyes and ears, soften hearts to receive this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we move into Psalm 81 this morning, I think one thing to do is to, to, it would be helpful for us to consider how this poem fits into the, the book as a whole. Uh, one, it's a hymn. We have a hymn here, so it's a, in that three, the idea of the three, orientation, uh, disorientation, reorientation. This is a psalm of orientation, though I will say, and you probably picked up on it, it has a bit of a feel of disorientation to it. It's, uh, there's, a, there's a prophetic nature to this psalm with this divine oracle in it. It calls believers to live rightly, to live in refuge and dependence on the Lord alone. Now, in particular, this psalm falls in book three. If you didn't know, there are five books in the Psalter or the book of Psalms. And in general, they actually fit together well and they progress. Uh, Years ago, I took a class from Mark Futado, one of my professors, 
And he really opened my eyes to seeing this arrangement of the Psalter. Uh, And it has been wonderfully helpful to me in knowing that the Psalms are not a bunch of disconnected poems that have no reason for why they are in the order they are in, but that the book is actually purposeful and instructive. See, the whole Psalter addresses the fact that the Lord is king. The Lord is king, and it looks through the, the, that he reigns, and it looks through that lens of a king, and in particular, as you look in redemptive history, through the messianic king. Now, in book one, the idea is that this kingship is inaugurated and it's confirmed. Uh, Psalm 2 sets that up, but there are a lot of psalms of David. There's a lot of lament. There's struggle. But in the end, that kingship is confirmed. And in book 2, the kingship is transferred. It's transferred to his son. The the final psalm of book 2 is Psalm 72, and it's a psalm of Solomon. It's his psalm that, that talks about the kingship transferred to him, and it lays out what a king is to be like. And then in book 3, we come to the question of, where did it all go? What, what happened? Is this whole kingship thing aborted? O. Palmer Robertson wrote this. He said, this book, so book three, deals much more extensively with the corporate community of the people of God and its devastation by international forces. Most striking in book three is this theme of the defeat of God's people at the hands of invading international enemies. Though victory is sometimes registered, the predominant message is the stunning defeat of God's people as they face these powerful forces of foreign nations. And the book concludes dramatically with the throne and crown of the Davidic king cast into the dust. Psalm 89 ends on this horrible tone in many ways. And in 89:49, we read this, the, the psalmist is questioning, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? They're going, where, where is it? Do you actually still love us? Where's the king? So the promises have seemed to fail. And then we come to books four and five. And books four and five serve as instruction for living in the absence of the messianic king. Book four calls us to live with faith that the Lord reigns. And so, despite the absence of the king, it begins with Psalm 90. Now, if you know, if you've noticed, Psalm 90 is actually one of the only psalms of Moses. Moses was pre the Davidic monarchy. So, what a a beautiful psalm to start out how to live in the absence of the Messianic King, which is for us today. I mean, yes, He's present, but He has not returned to reign in fullness. So we learn greatly from this, that He is our dwelling place and refuge. And then book five calls us to live with a faith in the Lord that obeys. Live with faith that obeys. Now, as I said, Psalm 81 falls in book three, and it has a feel of devastation in some ways. But actually, I believe what sticks out dramatically in this psalm is the heart of God for His people. Heart of God for His people. And I really do believe if we could get this truth deep into our own hearts, into the recesses of our being, it would do a great deal for us. So, Let's, as we hear today, let that message take root. 
and reach to us deep in the heart. Now, as we move into it, just want to say I'm indebted to, to Derek Kidner. His outline for this psalm was, was great, uh, three, three good words. Uh, I've modified it a little bit, but we're going to look at it as following under the headings. The first five verses are rejoice. Rejoice, it's a call to rejoice in many ways. Then six through ten is remember, and the rest of the psalm is repent. So rejoice, remember, and repent. So the beginning of this is a call to sing and, and to rejoice in the Lord. It is a call to actually very specific exuberant worship. Calvin wrote this. He said, they were not to stand deaf and dumb at the tabernacle. Okay, just picture that. It's worship standing just still completely. So for the service of God does not consist in indolence nor in cold and empty ceremonies, but they were by such exercises as are here prescribed to cherish among themselves the unity of faith, to make an open profession of their piety, to stir up themselves to continual progress therein, to endeavor to to join with one accord in praising God, and in short, to continue steadfast in the sacred covenant by which God had adopted them to himself. Coming together is so much. It's exuberance. It's, it's continuing to encourage one another. All these things, we are to do it with exuberance. But worship is more than singing. It's soul-strengthening. And yes, there is a call here to celebrate with music and uh, to, to sing aloud to God our strength. And I, I love that phrase, God our strength. Because that phrase, I think, sets the tone for much of this psalm. It hints at what's going to be addressed and the call that will be issued and who the God is that is making this call. He is our strength. There's the call to shout to the God of Jacob, the God of the people of Israel. Psalm 77, 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So Israel, and they often talk about, and Joseph, if you see that, that often refers to the people of Israel in Egypt. And what are they to do? They're to blow the trumpet. Um, many of you have probably seen that big, long ram's horn, the shofar. That's, that's what it's saying, to blow. It's saying, blow the, the shofar. In Leviticus 23, Starting in verse 23, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, so with blasts of the ram's horn, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. It's setting forth a a feast day. The psalm sets forth a statute a rule, and a decree for God's people. It's emphasizing these things. His people are commanded to celebrate. They're commanded to worship. And the words stress uh, perpetuity, authority, and revelation, that this is to continue on and on, that there's authority in these words. It's revelation from God saying, this you are to do. It's a command to worship. And we should not shy away from that command. We shouldn't chafe at that command to worship either. It's actually for our good because worship recenters us away from ourselves, away from our idols. It pulls us in to the life of God more and more. And yes, all of life uh, is a time to praise God, but there are times appointed. There is to be a weekly rhythm in worship. 
And as Matthew Henry wrote, not for God to meet us, He's always ready, but for us to meet one another that we may join together in praising God. And that reminds me of Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, to continue to meet in worship. Now, this particular decree that we see refers to the time, it says, when he went out over the land of Egypt. Now, who's the he? Okay. There are allusions here to Joseph. When Joseph took authority, he went out over the, he took authority and went out over the land of Egypt, becoming the second in command. But I think this alludes much more to God himself going throughout Egypt. Exodus 11, starting in verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and to all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. When the Lord went out over Egypt, this was a mighty display of his deliverance of his people, of his care for them, of his love, of his power and His grace. And so, in many ways, mentioning that leads us into this call to remember. And the last part of verse 5 seems a little odd. It seems a little out of place. It's hard to… no one really knows exactly what it's saying, uh, to be honest. I mean, we can read the words, but it just says, I hear a language I had not known. Okay, there's two real options here. There's one this is just in reference to the people of Israel being in Egypt. They're amongst the people of a language they have not known. If you look at Psalm 114.1, it talks about that. Or this is actually in reference to the voice of God, them hearing God's voice, a voice too often unknown to the people of Israel and unrecognized by His own people. I tend to lean towards the latter, that I think this is in reference to the people of God just really didn't know the voice of their God. One of the reasons I go for that is because lack of hearing is a key throughout this psalm. But let's look at this oracle, this divine oracle that starts in verse 6. So verses 6 and 7. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, here's a vivid picture of relief from oppression by the Egyptians. The shoulder's relieved. There's, there's no more weight on it. There's no more… Um, they're, they're no longer to bear that heavy load, the burden of slavery to the Egyptians. And the hand is freed from the basket, the basket of servitude. The, the, you see, the, the people had cried out in their distress. And what happened? What happened from their cry? The Lord heard. The Lord heard the cries of His people. He listened to it. He listened to the voice of His people, and He delivered them. Then the text alludes to two instances 
and Derek Kidner wrote this about it. So if you, if you look where he says, um, I answered you in the secret place of thunder, and I tested you at the waters of Meribah at the end of seven. He writes this. He says, the secret place of thunder was Sinai. So Mount Sinai, shrouded in smoke and terrible with the voice of God, it was education by encounter. The people were overwhelmed by the presence of God. And then Meribah was education by silence and apparent neglect. It left its name strife for dispute on two places in the desert where Israel failed the test of faith, both early and late in their pilgrimage. And if you had time, read through Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, but it's where Israel, they're, they're out, they've been delivered, and the first one is they just start complaining. They're like, where's the water? Moses, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. It would have been better if we were back in Egypt. And water gushes from the rock as the Lord provides for his people. Now that failure at Meribah is actually taken up in Psalm 95, and also referred to in Hebrews 3 and 4. Listen to Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Here's the exhortation from that. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's pushing us to, to not forget what the, the deliverance that we've had. And so these first few verses could be summed up in many ways of saying, people of God, remember your deliverance. Remember your deliverance. And the next three verses are really a call, remember to listen. Remember to listen. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Listen. Hear. Listening is such a major point in this whole text. You hear the word again in verses 11 and 13 because it is a hallmark of the people of God that they listen to God. That's, that's a distinguishing characteristic of a believer. They listen to God. They hear and they respond to His voice. Now, in the, the psalm, just before this, what happened again? The people called and the Lord heard. Now is the call for the people to hear the voice of the Lord calling to them. Respond to His voice, to respond to His voice alone, that they would actually set no others before God, that they would not worship a false God, that they would listen to and worship and look to none alone but God. Part of this, verses, uh, verse 10, the first two lines are essentially the preface to the Ten Commandments. If you read the Ten Commandments in, in Deuteronomy and Exodus 20, this is the preface. And that preface teaches us, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 44, states that, that because God is the Lord 
and our God and our Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all His commandments. You know, before those commandments are, are set forth in Scripture, it starts with actually, I've, I've redeemed you. Live this way. I've loved you. I've rescued you. And in these verses, God is, I think He's in a sense, He's pleading with His people that they would listen. Just listen. And, and he, you know, there's, there's a book in verse, verse 8, hear, O my people. And then the end of 10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He's already spectacularly shown redemption to his people. In so many ways, not just the, the, the exodus and um, other things, but, you know, think about with the Davidic kingship and uh, David, this pipsqueak slaying Goliath, that the whole people of Israel are able to, to experience the victory because of what one man did. So he says here, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And folks, you have to catch the imagery of that. Open your mouth wide and fill it. Just take a second. What do you see when you hear that? What I see is a bird's nest and a baby bird, helpless, unable to fly, unable to do anything on its own. And it just leans back and the mouth just, boom, way open. And what happens? Mama comes and fills them. All they have to do is open up. And the bird, the mom, takes care of them. God is saying, open up and I will fill you. Come to me and to me alone. Stop thinking you can go everywhere else. Don't try and jump out of the nest because you think everything looks better over there. You're going to die. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Say, listen to me. Worship me. Look to me. Deuteronomy 5.29, there's this pleading again. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. This was when they actually said, yes, we'll do all this. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Why? That it might go well with them and with their descendants. Obedience is good. Obedience is the way that we love the Lord in so many ways, and it's for our good. So let me maybe tread on thin ice here a little bit. That probably scares some of you as I say that. But to be blunt here, now not always, this is not universal in any way, but when things are not going well with you, are you listening to God? I'm not saying that every time things aren't going well, it's because of your disobedience. But I think too often we don't even think about that. We blame everyone else for what's going on. 
And yes, we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. But are you that baby bird who's trying to run out of the nest to so many other things to try and feed you? And yet you wonder why you're not being fed and why nothing is going well. So just consider that. Consider how are you doing at listening to the Lord's call, at looking to Him, at worshiping Him. What's pulling you away? What's distracting you from that? Again, I'm not saying that whenever things go wrong, it's always your fault. (laughs) I'm not saying that. Do not hear that. But I'm saying don't discount that it couldn't be the Lord working discipline in your life to try and draw you back to himself. And he's saying, hear, O my people, while I admonish you. Come back. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill you. Think of Jesus in the Good Shepherd discourse in John 10. I'm the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. And what does it say? And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's not really middle ground here. Those that are the sheep of the good shepherd, they hear, they listen, they're known, which, what a comfort, and they follow. They hear, they listen, they know, they're, they're known, and they follow the good shepherd. So this, this section, this remember, is really an admonishment. It's a correction by the Lord He's demonstrated his desire and ability to relieve us of our burdens, and he's calling us to stop trying to do it on our own and to actually turn back to him. We have to understand that he's working for our good, that his commands are for our good, that they protect us. So then look at verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. I love conjunctions. I think Buts are, are huge in, in reading Scripture well, but, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. This is not one of those. This is the but of disobedience, of rebellion and foolishness. Israel did not want God as their God. They did not want to submit to His authority, to His good statutes. They acted like the person screaming who's, who's got their hands over their ears like this, going, I'm not listening to you. And they're just stopped up. There's a distaste at this point in the people of God for God's own voice. You ever have that person in your life where you're like, I cannot listen to that voice ever again? That's how they're feeling. They have an utter distaste for God's voice. So then comes verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Here's the judgment of God. And this judgment is confirming them in their rebelliousness, in what they've chosen for themselves. See, God will often let us suffer the consequences of turning from Him 
the consequences of our stubbornness. He'll give us over. He'll send us off after the idols we are pursuing. Romans 1, 24 to 28, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, God gives people up in that sense. doesn't mean that He gives up on them. But he gives them up. He gives them over. He sends them off into the rebellion. In the wilderness, he did literally that. He sent them off, chasing after their gods into the wilderness. But the the judgment here, folks, is not the focus of this text. It's just not. It's not the dominant tenor of this psalm. The, the, The dominant tenor is the reassurance and the pleading of God. Verse 13, oh, 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 that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But, here's a good but, but he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. I think you hear echoes of this in Jesus' words in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. says, oh, but you would listen to me. The Lord would subdue His people's enemies. If they turned to Him, if they, they looked to Him, they sought refuge in Him alone. If they would repent of their idolatry and of their stopped-up ears, their enemies would cringe. The picture in many ways is that they'd be cut down to size. The enemies wouldn't look so big. They'd be just, just a little guy they'd be cut down to size. But even more so, the Lord would feed them, would give them the finest of wheat. He would satisfy them with honey from the rock, more than just water from the rock. There there, there wouldn't just be sweet water, there'd be sweet honey. And this makes me think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Because what happened to Israel in the wilderness is meant to teach us. So let us learn, okay? One, the rock, Paul sees the the rock where the water gushed forth. 
as a spiritual truth that the people were truly fed and filled by Christ. We are fed and filled by Christ as His people. He's our rock. He's our Redeemer. The Lord will satisfy His people. He has done so in Christ. He has worked tremendous deliverance. I think, I don't know, I've cited this many times, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all thanks? In many ways, what he said to Israel, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why are you going elsewhere? And yet we have the greater deliverance. I freed you from slavery to sin. Through the death of my son, how do you think I wouldn't graciously give you everything you need? I've given you the greatest gift ever, and you run after other things to fill these other areas of your life. It doesn't make sense. I'm not saying it's easy for us to continue to pursue after Him, but it just doesn't make sense. Folks, this psalm beautifully teaches us of God's heart, of His grace, His wealth of goodness, His love for His people, He is not an ungenerous nor impotent God. He's not unable to provide all that we need. Kidner says he he gives the best and brings sweetness out of what is harsh, forbidding, and wholly uncompromising. Because he's God our strength. Let me just close with John 10. Again, in that great shepherd, good shepherd discourse, John 10, verses 7 through 11. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. Don't listen to the, the other voices. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Pasture, the, what feeds the sheep, right? The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth and thank you that you're a God who does not give up on his people, who calls to us and pursues us. You want to give us good things. May we believe that May we hear your voice. May we rest in you. Lord, feed us with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock.
the rock that is Christ, would you satisfy us? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.